listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program and thank you for spending some of your time with us this hour. Just an absolutely fascinating yet frustrating press conference by the head of the Toronto Police Homicide Squad down at Toronto Police Headquarters on 40 College, wrapping up just a short while ago. Two years after the murder of Barry and Honey Sherman, we are, in the public at least, no closer to knowing the truth of what happened. Toronto Police say now that private investigation, the private investigation into the slayings of billionaire Barry Sherman and his wife Honey is over. But the police... Their probe continues. So Detective Hank Edsinger was briefing the media this morning, and I want to kind of unpack this for you. Go through it and read between the lines here, because there is a lot that is not being said, and it's really very fascinating. Now, Detective basically said that the investigation commissioned by the family, led by Brian Greenspan, is over. And here is the headline from the press conference. If you called in a tip and you called the private investigators in their tip line looking perhaps for a large reward, police now want to hear from you, but they want to hear from you personally. I just want to encourage people, if you have have submitted that information, please do resubmit it to us uh, so that we can go through all of that information. Did you catch that? They want to go through the information again. Now, police would not say whether or not there were any tips that came in from private investigators that had actually gone anywhere. We don't know that for certain. We just know that the police have been at loggerheads with the private investigators. They had these two parallel investigations going on at the same time. And I think anybody can recognize that that has problems because, as Detective Hedzinga pointed out, when it comes to filing a charge and trying to get something through the court system, it is up to the police. The police must defend their work. That is who is held accountable in the justice system, not private investigators. But back to that reward. Remember it was announced a year ago, $10 million for the solve, to be solved this crime? That was offered by the family. So is that still around? That reward is still outstanding, and all we're doing now is moving the responsibility for collecting the information back to the police service where it should belong, and uh, at the end of the day, it's still the Sherman's responsibility to decide what they want to do with that tip money. So the $10 million reward, it is still being handled by the family. The family will still decide whether or not it gets paid out, how much, and what the criteria is for it. It doesn't exactly, it doesn't move into Crime Stoppers. It's not the Toronto Police. They are not handling it. But yet, did you hear in there, there was a key sentence in there, back where it belongs. The investigation is back where it belongs, and that is with Toronto Police. Did the Sherman family fire Brian Greenspan? Because that has been going around. There's been some talk of that, but in difficult to actually ascertain the truth of it. Hank Edzinga was asked point blank. He refused to say, so you have to ask the family that. But keep in mind, here is Brian Greenspan on October 21st, 2018, when he had been hired by the family, and he put together an investigative team And he came out and he said that the investigation, at that point, led by the Toronto Police, was not up to the professional standards of the force. 
and then went on to say this. The most perplexing and upsetting aspect of the investigation was the failure to recognize the obvious, that the bodies of Barry and Honey Sherman were staged post-mortem in a very deliberate manner. This entire process has caused needless additional pain and suffering to the Sherman family. That is Brian Greenspan speaking on October 21st, 2018, about the Toronto Police investigation into the murder of Honey and Barry Sherman. Mr. Greenspan at that point had been retained by the family. It is unclear whether or not he is still retained by the family. But back to the police conference today. It has been two years. So, detectives, are you ever going to be able to solve this crime? It has been two years, but that's that's not unusual, especially in an investigation such as this. We've had uh, we've had some high-profile investigations in the past uh, that have taken, uh, I believe, the Glenn Davis case was two and a half, almost three years before that case was broken. Uh, I've had murder cases where I've made an arrest four years after the fact, and as we know, we have a, a cold case squad that can make arrests and, and close cases decades afterwards. I I don't think this case is going to fall into that category. That is the head of the Toronto Police Homicide Squad speaking this morning, Hank Zinka. Now, just in terms of background, Glenn Davis is a wealthy businessman and a philanthropist. May 18th, 2007, the 66-year-old was shot dead in an underground parking garage. In 2011, Marshall Ross, Glenn Davis's favorite relative, admitted to the murder. I should point out that Mr. Greenspan is still advising the family. He is in some sort of role with the family. You should clarify that. But as to whether or not he has been removed in terms of the investigation, clearly we hear from Toronto Police that that private investigation is finished. It is over. It is done. What does that mean going forward? Well, there is so much speculation about this case. And here, again, is the detective talking about how that is playing out in terms of trying to solve this crime. I can't imagine how disturbing it must be for the family and, and loved ones of these victims to continually read about speculation in, in the media. And that speculation continues to come from a different a number of different sources, including, and I don't mean to be pointing fingers here, because Kevin Donovan of the Toronto Star has reported a number of facts that I don't think we would know otherwise. And here is Kevin Donovan speaking earlier today on this radio station. What I've learned is that from from last year at December till July, uh, the Greenspan team was sending tips that they got from their reward line to the police. That all stopped in July. And so what I've been trying to uh, confirm is that a change has happened and that the Greenspan team is either in a completely different role now or it just is not involved in the investigation. And I'm not certain we got a whole lot of truth on that. Certainly not in the words that were said, but perhaps between their words there were some understanding of it. It looks like the Greenspan team has wrapped up its portion of the investigation, but does that indicate that Toronto police are closer to some kind of arrest, some kind of development, bigger development here, because we don't need tips anymore? Is that what's happening? Our Catherine McDonald is a global news crime specialist and was at at that press conference 
this morning. I'm trying to see if we have Catherine on the lines. Catherine, you with us? Hey, Catherine. What did you make of all of that? Read between the lines. Well, first of all, I did reach out to Greenspan's office, uh, and they just uh, wrote me back around 1130, and they said that Mr. Greenspan continues to be a consultant, advisor, and spokesperson for the family. Uh, But it's clear from what uh, Inspector Rizinga says that they are no longer uh, doing their private investigation. Their tip line has now been shut down. Police really want to make sure that anyone that called the tip line, uh, the Greenspan line, will now call the police if they haven't done that already. And and as you at that clip you played saying it's back where it belongs, I mean, this was in many ways uh, for the police, it was an encumbrance, having a parallel investigation. Uh, they wanted people to call them, and instead they were calling uh, this independent private team that was uh, doing their parallel investigation. Uh, in, in so many ways, it was difficult for police now, and now uh, the Toronto police feel it's back where they can can do it properly. That being said, I mean, a lot of criticism, as you heard. Why has it taken so long? I covered the Glenn Davis case, and I can tell you, um, you know, the re- only reason they were able to solve it was because someone in, in prison, uh, you know, spoke uh, to an undercover officer and uh, gave up one of the accused hitmen. And and so, Catherine, I, I just want to jump in on there because it was so interesting when he mentioned yeah. that, when he mentioned Glenn Davis. Now, keep in mind, that is a family uh, a relative that uh, confessed to the crime, and, he was, and Hank and Zinga was immediately asked, wait a minute, what other parallels are you drawing between those right, two cases? Right, right, exactly. Now, in, and, and in that case, it was a, a cousin of Glenn Davis, as you said, Marshall Ross. Uh, but, you know, I think in that case, they really they got lucky. Someone in, in jail uh, rolled, uh, spoke about one of his... Uh, you know, uh, he, he gave some information to an informant who was undercover, and that's how they were able to crack that case. And, um, you know, police need to get lucky here because it looks, it seems to me like they're a long way from solving this. But did you get case. the sense that they were really asking for any tips there? I really, you know, sometimes when you hear police come out and they say, look, we desperately need somebody to come forward, it didn't have that feel. No, I, I don't think so. I think what they were trying to say today is, Greenspan's uh, team is now done their investigation, so everything needs to come to us from now on. And uh, so just like, let's clarify that. The reward's still there, but any kind of reward that's paid out will come via tips you send to us. And, uh, it, you know, like it's clearly now time to, to make sure the public realizes there's, there, are no, there are no two investigations going on. It's just one now. Mr. Greenspan was so highly critical of Toronto Police in that press conference. I played a portion of it earlier. Do you think that that has really caused, hampered the investigation in any way? Look, I, I mean, police have to look at everyone, uh, including uh, those closest to Honey and Barry Sherman. That may mean the family. And if uh, Greenspan's been hired by the family, it's impossible for him to be, you know, objective here. And, and I think from the beginning, that was the fear by the Toronto police. Like, how can we share our information with this, pri- this private investigative team when, you know, we may get information that could lead us to members of the Sherman family itself? So... Now the police can independently uh, investigate everyone and anyone, and that includes people who knew the the, the, the family, uh, including their own their own children, their own relatives, people who, uh, if Brian Greenspan, he can't, he wouldn't have been able to do that properly, given that the family, the children hired him, and, and so that he would have been there would have been a conflict there. Catherine McDonald is our global news crime specialist. Always great to have you on the program. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Alan. Well, I asked the question, what is an automated system enforcement, automated speed enforcement device? What is that? 
Well, ASE is a fancy way of saying these new automated cameras that are going up in 50 locations around the city beginning today, and they will be snapping photos and eventually sending fines to speeders. Mayor John Tory, along with a number of councillors, unveiled one of the 50 automated speed enforcement signs. It, what would that be, ACE? Would be ASS? I'm not certain. Uh, the, this one is on Renforth Drive between Trabert Gate and Lafferty Street. This is where the mayor was this morning as he unveiled this thing. And here is Tory saying that 50? Well, we're not even started yet. Right now it's going to be put out on the basis of two cameras per ward in the city so that it's spread out in different uh, hot spots where we've seen speeding be a problem. But I can assure you that certainly the budget will not be a problem. There is no limit of 50 cameras. We've decided on an initial allocation of 50 cameras and the staff have suggested that we should rotate them from time to time. But uh, we will look at what works. Yeah, you know what? They're not going to rotate those things. I mean, they talk about it. But, I mean, these are in high-risk areas, high-collision areas already. I think it's. I think they're, they're supposed to be movable, and that's what they set up today. They showed them off. But, you know, I don't think they're going to be moving many of them. Once we get 50, we're just going to get 50 more and 50 more on top of that. And that will be that. They will just be where they are and be left there. Interesting things that we found out about these new cameras today. The, the technology does a couple of things. Things. Apparently, it can figure out two different lanes of traffic at the same time and which vehicle might be traveling at an excessive speed rather than, you know, sending the wrong ticket to the wrong car. You know, if, if you get one of these tickets and say, I wasn't speeding, you may want to dispute that. But that, according to the experts, to the people that bought this uh, for the city, uh, that's what they were saying today. Also interesting, they were asked, both the mayor and the technical uh, advisors were asked today, so what's this thing set to? Like, is it going to, like, 50.02? Are you just bang, you're going to get a ticket? Or like, is it, where's the wiggle room? Is there wiggle room? Well, they, and obviously, would not say. They just say, well, the, the you know, the, whatever the sign is posted at, that is what the speed limit is. But it was clear from the non-answer, there is actually wiggle room. There is some wiggle room there. It was clear from, like they said, like, well, we're not going to say, but we're saying. You know what I mean? Now, how's all this going to work with this 90-day wait time that was imposed by the province? And this came out of nowhere for the mayoralty and for the, for the city, pardon me. It's because they, they, they'd been in negotiations for this, and then all of a sudden the province said, yes, okay, finally, we'll pass the legislation. There it is. The regulation is there. You can put the things in place. But you still have to wait 90 more days from today. So I would expect that the cameras are going to be installed in the next couple of weeks, which would mean the 90-day clock will run and the tickets will be issued in the spring. You know, I say the spring, meaning in March. And uh, so people will have uh, warning letters in the meantime, and they will have uh, warning of the fact that this is coming so they can start to change their behavior immediately. So you are about to be warned, and then you will be fined. Speeding cameras being installed all around the city. The signs already up, the cameras to be up shortly, and then after 90 days... The tickets are issued. Edibles. Eat them if you got them, folks. If you're hoping to buy a next-generation cannabis product coming later this week when it is actually legally available or supposed to be available, you know, maybe you like a infused beer, maybe a gummy bear is your thing. Well, you are going to be out of luck, unless you happen to live in Saskatchewan. Because 
it's only legal to buy derivative products, that doesn't mean it's actually going to be on the shelf. This is what's known today as, or tomorrow it will be known as, Cannabis 2.0, for those that put labels on this sort of thing. It's the second wave, the the second tranche, if you will, if you like a slice of cake every once in a while. The second tranche of products that are going to be legally available, but just because they're legally available, as I said, doesn't mean that the largest province in this country the largest provinces, plural, will have anything available on store shelves. The only place is Saskatchewan. And here's Omar Khan from Hill & Knowlton, who's an expert in this kind of thing, talking about why. In a place like Saskatchewan, uh, where where a producer can send it directly to the retailer, uh, it creates uh, it cuts out the middleman, it lowers costs, it makes the supply chain a little bit more efficient. In a place like Ontario, it's a little bit more bureaucratic, a, a few more middlemen in the system, uh, and that creates some additional costs for retailers and, and expands the amount of time it takes to get product from warehouse to to, to the retail shelves. So that is Omar Khan from Hill and Knowlton speaking on Global News Morning earlier today, talking about why it is in some places in this country as of this week you'll be able to legally buy edibles but here in Ontario you simply will not be able to because it takes a while on the old pipeline the gummy pipeline for the stuff to actually get to the store shelves so you may be excited about this you may be thinking about putting a little something special in a uh, stocking just careful who's stocking you put that in as you know what I mean uh, so th- it is coming it, but just not here yet and how long will it take for us to get edibles? We're just waiting for a spokesperson from Ontario Cannabis Store to join us on the line, and we'll try and get you a straight answer on when you're actually going to legally be able to buy this stuff. Because, of course, keep in mind, the whole point supposed to be, the whole point of this exercise, legalizing cannabis in this country, was supposed to be that we would get rid of the gray and the black market. But unless you can actually buy the stuff legally, that's not going to happen, is it? David Roderick is the Ontario Cannabis Store spokesperson and joins me on the line. Welcome to the program. Hey, Alan. How are you? I'm great, thanks. So give us a timeline. When will Ontarians be able to legally buy edibles? Well, we at the Ontario Cannabis Store are, are legally able to start buying them today. Uh, we're uh, purchasing from uh, from our licensed producers, and, and uh, they're going to start shipping to them, them to us uh, shortly. Um, once they pass our, our quality assurance process, we're going to make them available to the retailers, uh, and the first stores uh, that will be able to buy will schedule to receive product on January 6th. So stores receive January 6th, so then yep. probably a day or two before they actually hit the store shelves, that sort of thing? Well, you know, it depend, I, it'll really depend on the retailers, and I wouldn't want to speak for them, but uh, I know they're very eager to get their hands on the product. And as you said, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a big appetite for these. So um, I think they're, they're, they, will, they will move heaven and earth to get product on the shelf that day. Ontario has recently announced a change in the distribution model. What is that? Well, you know, it, it, it's not so much a change as it is a, that there, there's a, there's an opening in it where we've allowed for licensed producers who uh, are interested to start exploring um, direct delivery. However, the vast majority of them are not interested in that. They want to instead focus on, on growing cannabis and creating products that consumers are excited about. Um, so what the what the end of that we did a very extensive consultation with the licensed producers, and uh, the the end result of that is that we're going to be uh, expanding uh, the centralized, privately run uh, distribution system that we we have in place now. 
you, you don't foresee many producers going directly to retailers. Not at this point. I don't think it's a closed it's a closed door entirely. I think there 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 may be some, but the, the vast majority, more than eighty percent of them, said that they at this point in time they had no interest in, in doing it. It's a, it you know, would require an extensive investment, and if you're only delivering your products, you don't get the same economy of scale as we do, and we're delivering products from you know more than forty different licensed producers. And last week, the province also announced changes to the previous lottery system, and we're going to see a lot more stores open a lot faster in 2020, correct? Correct. What kind of numbers are you looking at? You know, I, I wouldn't want to hazard guess at, uh, at how many they're going to be able to license, but, you know, we're, we're, we, know, we know everyone is excited for this, and when we're ready to implement the government's decision and support the move to open licensing. We're, and we're, we're working really closely with the AGCO, and uh, I think we want to continue what we have in Ontario, which is we, we've got really strong retail stores. We just need a lot more of them. The lottery system was mired in problems. Is this admission an admission that the previous system of lottery to give out licenses was flawed? Well, I think you have to remember the the, the context of, of that system, which was there was a real restriction in the supply of cannabis. Um, I think uh, Ontario's uh, retail stores to date have uh, been very successful. Um, yes, there are not as many as we would like, but I, I think we're we're now in a supply situation where uh, cannabis is ready. People are seeing prices drop. We we don't have a supply issue that's been resolved, and uh, we're all just very focused on moving forward. Give consumers an idea of what they can expect to see on store shelves, perhaps later in the week of January sixth. Well, I think uh, you know uh, you, you were commenting on the on the lead-in. Uh, you know that uh, we're not going to be successful against the illegal market unless we we have the products people want. And I think that's uh, this this move is is going to be delivering um, that next generation of cannabis products. Um, we are seeing uh, you know we're seeing in development from licensed producers. We're seeing you know drinks, uh, candies, uh, soft gels chocolates, uh, bath bombs, uh, the extracts, the vapes. But I think, you know, it was similar to the first round of legalization, and that's one of the reasons that we are <laughs> we're rolling it out in a very measured way. Um, it's going to be fairly narrow to start with. And I think if you if you judge the success or failure on the the, the role on, on on you know the the 2.0 products um, on on day two, uh, then, then you know that that's probably not the right lens. I think you're going to see throughout the course of the rest of the winter and into the spring, just a, a growing mass of products. Um, our, our licensed uh, uh, producer partners have have done a tremendous amount of work uh, and, and and research and spent a made good investments to create some really great products, and uh, consumers will be able to trust that they're legal. They're tested, they're, they're traceable, um, and all the advantages of, of the legal market. Daphne Roderick is a spokesperson with the Ontario Cannabis Store. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thanks very much, Alan. Have a great day. As Christmas approaches, are you thinking to yourself, maybe a big ticket item is what I need. Maybe I need a Tesla. That's that's it. Sign me up for one of those e-cars. Hey, I know I'll do. I'll get one of those green vehicles. Everybody will be happier. I'm saving the planet. And I'll just sign it here. Where's that rebate that, oh, oh, right. The progressive conservatives canceled those rebates for e-vehicles. 
And recently the Auditor General said that all of the projections that Ontario has for the number of electric vehicles that will be on the road in 20 or 30 years, we're not going to make that, certainly not on the current numbers, because since they canceled all of the rebates, surprise, surprise, what has happened? Sales have plummeted. Electric Mobility Canada says that during the first half of the year, sales of electric vehicles in Ontario were down more than 55% from the same period in 2018. Under the previous Liberal government, Ontario offered up to $14,000 back for buyers of electric vehicles. But the Ford government scrapped the rebate, saying it was going to people who could already afford expensive cars. Ontario's figures had been increasing on par with those of B.C. and Quebec, the leaders in the field, before the financial incentive disappeared. Steve Henniger, the Canadian Press, Toronto. So would you buy a car without an incentive, or are you just waiting around till perhaps the government puts it back in place? You're like, if I wait this thing out, I tell you what, I'm going to get myself uh, one of those SUVs, the biggest, the biggest one I can get. i got to get something that burns leaded gas until they bring back the rebate. Then... I'll buy the e-vehicle. Meanwhile, the Ontario government has now passed a bill that makes it illegal to block electric vehicle charging stations in this province. It's Bill 123. It's dubbed the Reserved Parking for Electric Vehicle Charging Act. It's been passed at Queen's Park. And now it makes it illegal for non-electric cars to park in a charging spot. I thought my car was electric. I'm sorry. Drivers of electric vehicles who are parked in a charging spot but not using the equipment can also face 125 bucks. Just because you have an electric vehicle, if it's not plugged in, it ain't doing its thing, you got to get charged for that. This is so fascinating that they bring this in at the same time that the sales of electric vehicles are plummeting because they've taken away the very incentives that are designed to make all of this thing make sense. Meanwhile, in the world of business, Cineplex has agreed to a friendly takeover that values Canada's largest chain of movie theaters at $2.8 billion. Britain's Cineworld Group is buying Cineplex for $34 per share cash. That's 42% above Friday's closing price for Cineplex shares. Cineplex has 165 movie theaters across the country, making it by far the biggest chain. It's also diversified into a variety of entertainment-related businesses, including advertising, events, programming, and the Rec Room, a chain of locations serving food, drink, and amusements. The companies expect the deal to close in the first half of next year. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press, Toronto. So suddenly when you go to see a movie at Cineplex, you are not going to a Canadian chain anymore. It will be a foreign conglomerate instead. To the UN, the United Nations AIDS Agency, there is some unbelievable drama going on there. Have you heard about this? Two two agency staffers have been fired now for financial and sexual misconduct, but catch the backstory on this one. One of the staffers is a whistleblower whose allegations of being sexually assaulted sparked months of turmoil at the organisation. Last March, Martina Brostrom publicly accused a senior UN AIDS director of forcibly kissing her and trying to drag her out of a Bangkok elevator in 2015. She also said he had sexually harassed her on other occasions. But before those allegations became public, Brostrom herself and a supervisor were being probed by UN officials for their own sexual and financial misconduct, as revealed in an Associated Press story in April. I'm Charles de Ledesma. I, I don't know what to make of that, other than there's a lot of probing going on in that. It's a lot of probing. 
The chief executive officer at Hallmark Cards has apologized. Said the company is going to reverse an earlier decision to pull TV ads featuring same-sex couples from the wedding registry and planning website Zola. In a statement, the CEO said the cable television Hallmark Channel will be reaching out to Zola to reestablish our partnership and reinstate the commercials. This happened after a viewer's group, a parent's group complained, then the ads were pulled, and now they're back again. So it's like counter-cancel culture. It's, it's, it's enough to make your head spin. But I'll tell you this much for free. Hallmark Channel got a, just a boatload of free press out of this thing. Anybody, I, all of a sudden I'm like, I want to watch a Christmas movie. What's on Hallmark? I don't know. This is good news for some. Christmas dinners may be in doubt after an unbelievable incident in Fife, Scotland. Police were called to a roundabout in Fife, and there was a collision between a truck and a vehicle carrying Brussels sprouts. Yes. And here's what police tweeted. There's been a bit of a Brussels sprout accident at the roundabout at Admiralty Road. Please avoid the area if possible. Traffic and Christmas dinners may be affected. I think there's a a lot of kids in Fife who are absolutely thrilled by the destruction of all those Brussels sprouts. Because, I I mean, I've, I've grown to love Brussels sprouts, but that is a thing that only old people eat. No self-respecting kid likes a Brussels sprout. Hungry? Got the munchies at all? Thinking about getting some food? Maybe thinking, I just I just check on my phone here. Maybe I'll get to that delivery app that I use, whichever one I use. I'll order something. It'll be here in half an hour. Boom. Don't even have to leave the house. Well, did you know that third-party delivery apps like DoorDash and Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes have transformed the entire restaurant market? Consumers looking for convenient meals actually ordered $10.2 billion worth of food from delivery aggregators in 2018. The stats from the United States. And that would make third-party delivery market the fifth-largest U.S. retail chain. Fueled by cash from venture capitalists and private equity firms, tech-focused delivery companies have expanded in the United States and now internationally right across this country, luring large national restaurant chains. The question remains, are they profitable? Are they sustainable? Much has been made that the cash from the venture capitalists is actually underwriting your pad tie. You are not paying the full pull for those fish and chips. And that when that venture capitalist money begins to drive up, every go dry up, pardon me, everything from Uber to Uber Eats is going to be more expensive. Plus, there are other problems for the delivery system when it comes to restaurants. Because how sustainable is it with vehicles driving back and forth, all those takeout containers? Well, cue the ghost restaurants and the ghost kitchens. Have you heard about this? A ghost restaurant is something that has a menu. It offers everything from burgers, burritos, you name it. Do you want it? You got it. The only thing is there's no actual restaurant. No tables, no candles, no soft conversations, no smooth jazz, no servers, no physical takeout, nothing. Just a warehouse where they churn out food. 
It's made to look like a restaurant. You'll order it from the app, not actually a real restaurant. Now, consumers might not realize there are often significant price differences for the same menu item between the restaurant's website and the food delivery app. Did you know this? Promotional offers, fee surcharges, all of it makes it extremely difficult to figure out, well, what is the better deal? Erica Alini is with Global News and has written on this and is on globalnews.ca. Her piece is on globalnews.ca right now, and Erica joins me on the line. Hi, Erica. Hi, Ellen. What did you find out about how the cost from restaurants differs from delivery apps? So when I started out and I did a little bit of clicking around to, as you said, find out what the best deal was, and I found out two interesting things. One is um, there's great, you know, I did a, for my sample orders, there was a great variety um, just based on the time of day and different types of apps. So there was, um, I might have been able to save, you know, one to two dollars on a ten to fifteen dollar order, depending on which delivery app uh, I was ordering from, at the same, you know, same time of the day, same menu item, um, and that depended on the fee structure of the specific app, um, you know, and uh, whether I was eligible for a promotional offer or not, whether there was a surcharge for a small order. But the more interesting thing I found was also that there was sometimes a significant difference between the, pri- the base price uh, of the menu item that I was looking at on the restaurant's website and on various apps. So on some apps, the very same burger, for example, um, was um, more than $2 uh, more. And when I dug into it, it was, you know, um, the restaurant said it was because they also um, have to pay a service fee uh, to the delivery app. They can't uh, absorb all the cost, uh, and therefore they have to charge higher prices, higher menu prices on that app. And so basically the consumer is paying the delivery fee, um, and all the costs that you actually see uh, added onto the menu item, but also part of the costs that would normally accrue to a restaurant. So you're saying directly ordering from the restaurant sometimes is more cost-effective? Directly ordering for the restaurant sometimes is more cost-effective. Not all restaurants uh, obviously have uh, their own um, delivery service because it's, uh, it's a big business, a big operation to set that up. Um, but another thing that I found is a lot of restaurants that have their own delivery service have a set delivery fee. That set delivery fee is often more expensive, uh, you know, it's often higher uh, than what you might pay on a, um, on a delivery app depending on the time of day because the delivery apps offer charges that vary, right? They vary based on the weather, the size of your order, where you're ordering from, uh, what's the demand at the time that you're ordering. Um, so a lot of the times what you're paying, the delivery fee that you're paying through the app is lower. For example, if I'm ordering on a Monday morning before the lunch hour rush, um, I'm very likely um, better off deliver, um, ordering with an app. But if I am ordering dinner on a Friday, uh, there's a blizzard outside, everyone is trying to order dinner, then I'm probably better off ordering from the restaurant that has a set delivery fee that doesn't vary based on all those factors. 
Erica, one of the things I found so interesting about your article is is you get into how apps actually set prices for food, and each app is different, it seems. Yeah, the basic principles are similar. So again, um, they um, they have a, a delivery fee that varies, and it tends to vary based on all those factors um, uh, that I mentioned. And then, but the the specific structure is a little bit different uh, from app to app. And then you'll have you know the app that's offering free delivery for all year, or the app that's offering free delivery to new customers. Um, the app that's waiving the surcharge on small orders for this month. So it's really difficult to know in advance which app is going to get you um, the best price given what you want to order. All right, then try and wrap this up for me because I think this is going to be a tough one. Is Are there any tips to make sure you get the best deal or is it really just a roll of the dice? So unfortunately, I wish there was something like an Expedia, right, of <laughs> delivery apps that just finds the best deal for you, but we don't have that yet. <laughs> perhaps it's, it's a million-dollar idea. I got to go. I got to <laughs> work on that right now. <laughs> but in the absence of that, yeah, all you have to do basically is, um, you know, once you've made up your mind and you know what you're going to order, um, clicking around a little bit, like opening different apps and checking, um, can be worth it, right? It's like a few more thumb strikes and can save you a few dollars off your your small order. Erica Alini is a Global News National Online journalist, and you can read her piece on globalnews.ca about how to possibly get the best deal when ordering takeout. Erica, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. Well, we actually have news that uh, involves alligators. You don't alligators? Yeah, you don't get a lot of alligator news north of the border. But alligators. This weekend we got alligator news. Alligators. I, oh my goodness! And I'll just give you a bit of a back that's a stop to this bit of a backstory. If if you've, if, uh, but I'll get you some shoe leather on this to chew over. Now, if you wonder why is it I'm all, why is this guy's always going on about alligators? Alligators. When I was about I don't know. Four or five years old, I was watching some movies, and I bet you it was on TVO. I bet you it was El Uyost, uh, and It was some old Tarzan movie, and it was just black and white, and a, a couple of guys fall out of a raft, and a couple of alligators jump in to the water. Now, in, in the movie, this is treated with the same kind of solemnity as killing off a red-shirted guy in Star Trek. Like, it's just what whatever, just casual violence. But this thing stuck with me, and I had nightmares for years. And I am terrified of alligators. So alligators? I would have just flipped out if I was in Montreal this weekend. And I'm not sure if you've seen this video. But in Montreal, there's some people, they're having a coffee. And I don't know if you know this, but Montreal's kind of cold, too. And they look out, and sure enough, there's an alligator walking across the street. Right there. Alligator. Alligators? Uh, the presumed owner then picks the thing up, puts it in a minivan. But people have called 911 already. So police arrive, they interview the man, and then the mayor gets in on it and tweets out that she got a city crew to the site, and they checked into it, and the owner of the alligator had all the proper permits, and it was all part of an educational project. And I guess maybe the alligator just escaped. So think about that if you got like a four-year-old, and you're thinking, you know, we'll get... Bob, the zoo guy, to come over. He's got the alligator. 
You best keep your eye on Bob and his alligator in case it gets away. You should do that on the show, have him, have, have him come in. This is, no, this is not going to happen. I'm terrified of alligators, which leads me to this, which puts together two things that I'm terrified of. I'm also quite frightened of feral pigs, because I don't know if you know this, but feral pigs are sweeping across North America. They're an invasive species. Sooner or later, the entire... You worry about zombies, maybe. I'm worried about the feral pigs. Well, in Florida, the governor now has said that a man has suffered a substantial bite to his leg while hunting for feral pigs. What bit him? An alligator. Alligator? Marin County Sheriff Spokeswoman said that an alligator reported to be 10 feet long just, this guy was out hunting pigs, and an alligator took a huge chunk out of his leg. He had to be airlifted to hospital. That is scary. That is some scary stuff. I want to finish with a bit of a sermon from the pulpit, if I could. I don't know if you spent any time in church. I was raised uh, in a religious family, spent a lot of time in churches, so I am fascinated by what I'm going to tell you right here. This is a new survey from the Pew Research Center, uh, It basically it went in and checked how long sermons were in various branches of Christianity. It's a first-of-its-kind study, and what it found is that sermons at historically black Protestant churches last 54 minutes on average. That is nearly four times as long as a Roman Catholic sermon. The median time for sermons in mainline Protestant churches is about 25 minutes. In the evangelical churches, it's 39 minutes. And according to the research, congregations at historically black churches are most likely to hear the word hallelujah. Where if you go to an evangelical church, you're most likely to hear eternal hell. Amen. Amen.